Shalom and welcome to our Kadima Talk. This week we are specifically getting into some leadership skill sets. I think you're going to really enjoy today as we're continuing to populate our channels and get more and more information out there. But it's a step-by-step process, so be patient with us as we continue to pursue developing our leadership skill sets. Anyone who's seeking a leadership position or is placed into one It's an adjustment phase, a period of settling into the routines and getting used to this increased responsibility and the need to provide leadership skill to those under you. Your style of who you are, your interests, your dreams, your desires in serving Adonai, that's still who you are. There's a misconception that uh, I'm a Messianic rabbi when I'm not at work. Hey, listen, I'm a man who has dreams, who has interests, who has hobbies. My job, my calling as a Messianic rabbi, that's not who I am 24-7. I'm a father. I'm a husband. I'm a grandfather. So there's many aspects to us as individuals. You have persons of interests and dreams and desires, even though you're serving Adonai or in a position of leadership, either in the military or in the civilian world, in uh, corporate realms. But leadership skill sets are developed over time through experience, training, on-the-job training, and a process of maturing into that level that prepares you for the next level. I'm going to tell you a secret today, a former mystery that's now being revealed. There are no 90 or 180-day leadership wonders. In today's ATM internet, nanosecond instant Wi-Fi life, we live We develop dangerous and false expectations of immediate results. Developing leadership skill sets isn't that way. Developing leadership skill sets is a process that develops over years. So we have to be patient and we have to plow the ground of leadership to see the fruit of becoming a good leader. There's no shortcuts. Developing into a leader is a step-by-step process. It's methodical, and there's many difficulties with it, which we'll get into today. There's a wide variety of leadership styles. Even those who are functioning in the same leadership positions have widely varying differences in their leadership styles. And so I don't want you to take away that you have to be like me, or you have to be like your rabbi, or you have to be like your boss, because you're your own individual. This is where we began with So you develop the skill sets for you that work for you and make you a good leader able to bring people to do something they wouldn't normally do. We see a profound example of this in our prior presidents of the United States of America. Ronald Reagan, the great communicator, he had wonderful communicating skills. He delegated to others and trusted them to get the job done. He sought those around him who were capable, put them in positions of leadership and let them run with it. Others, such as President Jimmy Carter, and uh, you know, I'm not playing politics here. I'm just citing two different examples of leaders. Jimmy Carter was a micromanaging type of leader who was closely involved with the assignments he gave to his staff. This occurs because people are different. No two people are alike. Jimmy Carter was as far away from Ronald Reagan as East is from the West. Each of us have different temperaments, we have different giftings, we have different characters, we have different experiences, we have different maturity levels, we have different backgrounds. Though we have differences, there are basic foundational skill sets necessary for all leaders to possess if they're going to be successful. One of the first we're going to talk about is, and this is critical, you have to be able to work well with others. If you don't like people, if you don't get along with people, you're not going to lead. Listen, this is critical. The most important skill set 
of a leader is their ability to get along with people. And how much more so for us who are serving Adonai in people. We are in the people business. We must have the ability to overcome conflict with staff, with congregates, with people around us. We've referred to this scripturally as brotherly love. In Romans 12, verses 3 through 13, he said, For I'm to Anisha Shaul, Paul, who, who is a great congregation planter, he says, For I'm telling every single one of you, through the grace that has been given to me, not to have exaggerated ideas about your own importance. So this speaks to a side of humility that we have to have, because if you're not a humble leader, you're not going to get along with others very well. You can force yourself to the top, but it's not going to be pleasant, and it won't be successful for whatever venue you're in, whether it be ministry or the corporate realm or even in the military. Instead, he says, develop a sober estimate of yourself based on the standard which God has given to you, each of you, namely trust. For just as there are many parts that compose one body, but the parts don't all have the same function. So there are many of us. And in union with the Messiah, we comprise one body with each one of us belonging to the others. But we have gifts that differ, which are meant to be used according to the grace that has been given to us. If your gift is prophecy, use it to the extent of your trust. If it is serving, use it to serve. If you're a teacher, use your gift in teaching. If you're a counselor, use your gift to comfort and exhort. If you're someone who gives, do it simply and generously. If you're in a position of leadership, lead with diligence and zeal. If you are one who does acts of mercy, do them cheerfully. Don't let love be a mere outward show. Recoil from what is evil and cling to what is good. Love each other devotedly and with brotherly love and set examples for each other in showing respect. Don't be lazy when hard work is needed, but serve the Lord with spiritual fervor. Rejoice in your hope, be patient in your troubles, and continue steadfastly in prayer. Share what you have with God's people and practice hospitality. So this is a key fundamental aspect. You've got to be able to work well with others to exhibit and show brotherly love and to work through trials and tribulations together corporately, whether it's in the corporate realm, whether it's in the congregation setting, whether it's even in your family, among wife and children. This is a gift that we all have to work through and do to the amount of trust that we are given by Adonai. We have to be able to display maturity, emotional and spiritual maturity. 1 Timothy 3, verses 2 through 7, says a congregation leader. Now, this is biblical, of course. This is the aspect we're coming at this from. But you could say a leader, but a congregation leader must be above reproach. He must be faithful to his wife, temperate, self-controlled, orderly, hospitable, and able to teach. He must not drink excessively or get into fights. Rather, he must be kind and gentle. He must not be a lover of money. He must manage his own household well, having children who obey him with all proper respect. For if a man can't manage his own household, how will he be able to care for God's Messianic community? And I want to pause here for a second. These are one of the venues that I look at when we're looking to bring someone into leadership within the congregation, the first thing I look at is their loyalty and trust to God. Are they using their time, their talents, their tithes? Are they committed and loyal to the congregation? Are they tithing? Are they here for every service? Do they show up for extra events? Are they showing up when extra work is needed to help set up, to help take down? Then we look at the family. Does he have a well-managed family, a loving wife, children who are respectful? These are all venues of a good leader because if he's doing it at home or she, you'll see it in the congregation setting or in the corporate realm. 
So we can't manage our own household. How are we able to care for God's Messianic community? Shaul said in verse 5 of 1 Timothy 3. Verse 6 says he must not be a new believer because he might become puffed up with pride and thus fall under the same judgment as did the adversary. Verse 7, further, he must be well regarded by outsiders so that he won't fall into disgrace into the adversary's trap. So scripture itself restricts new believers from positions of spiritual authority, oversight, or leadership because they are not at a place of emotional and spiritual maturity. They haven't learned the discipline of self-control, of uh, being in the word every day in a daily prayer life. One of the clearest marks or signs of spiritual and emotional maturity is the ability to act and react towards others by manifesting the love of Messiah. See, we're back to this getting along with people and how they interact with people. Because if you're anti-people, then you're anti-God because people are made in God's image. And we only have two relational values in the kingdom, us and God, and between his creation, us and each other. The word tells us we should love each other as brothers and control our behavior. There are moral restrictions. The Bible clearly lays out how we should live our life to be successful in the kingdom and to be good leaders for the kingdom. 1 Corinthians 13, starting at verse 4, says, Love is patient and kind, not jealous, not boastful, not proud, rude, or selfish, not easily angered, and it keeps no records of wrongs. Love does not gloat over either other people's sins, but takes its delight in the truth. Love always bears up, always trusts, always hopes, and always endures. Now, this is one of those, I shared this earlier, this is commonly referred to in weddings and marriages all the time, but when Paul wrote this, he wasn't writing it for a marriage or wedding ceremony, he was writing it to the congregation in Corinth. And so this is how we're to react with each other, interact with each other, that if you will, this is a code of conduct for kingdom work in relating to others. We have to be especially uh, concentrating on not being easily offended or provoked. It's one of the hardest things in the body of Messiah as a leader. It's unbelievable. If I wrote a book about what people have said to me and the comments they've made in the last 20 years, most people wouldn't believe it. So you've got to have a little Teflon. You've got to be like a water off a duck's back. You've got to have to let comments slip because sometimes people don't actually know or understand what they're saying. And if you're easily offended or provoked, you're not being a self-controlled, disciplined leader in the kingdom. There are many, many, listen to me, there are many situations that arise that will irritate you, that go against the core principles of who you are. But we must always be aware of how intimidating it can be to others to relate to spiritual leaders. So if every little issue irritates us and we go on a tantrum, we become angry and vocalized, People will be shocked and wonder if you're even serving God. I've literally had people come into my own office shaking. They were so nervous, barely able to talk because they were talking to the rabbi in his office. We must always walk in a courteous, humble manner that makes us approachable, that people can relate with and talk to and share their feelings, their troubles, their zeros, their difficulties with us, that we can grow and expand the kingdom of God. 2 Timothy 2, verse 24 said, A slave of the Lord shouldn't fight. On the contrary, he should be kind to everyone, a good teacher, and not resentful when mistreated. We have to give up our right in being wronged. A leader is a selfless sacrificer in the kingdom. You're consistently doing things for other people. So we have to learn to get along in brotherly love. 
Next, our leadership styles must be in alignment with God's desire to build up the body of Messiah. Now, this is some drastic departure from typical congregational thinking. If your focus is on building a congregation, I'll share with you that your focus is wrong. Our goal and focus is to build the kingdom of Messiah, and by building the kingdom, your congregation will grow with it. 2 Corinthians 12, verse 19 says, perhaps you think that all this time we've been defending ourselves before you. He said, no, we've been speaking in the sight of God as those united with the Messiah should, and my dear friends, it's all for your upbuilding. Paul Shaul summed up the reason for his leadership behavior, upbuilding, edifying, building the body of Messiah. The most effective leaders are positive, they're optimistic, they're goal and task oriented. Attitudes reproduce. If you're positive, if you're upbeat, if you're joyous, then people around you will be upbeat. They'll be joyous. John Maxwell calls that the law of attraction. So if you're a downer and you're negative all the time, you attract downer and negative people. But if you're optimistic, positive, you're upbeat, you're a joy to be around, you will attract people who are upbeat, joyful, and fun to be around. Leaders who consistently sow optimism, trust, and vision, they will read the same response from fellow laborers in the kingdom. You can't allow your own personal trials and problems to dominate you and undermine the spirit of victory Adonai wants for the Messianic community. Never, listen, here's a critical aspect. Never preach to a problem you're having from that bim or pulpit. That's a grave mistake. A leader must be self-controlled, self-disciplined, and take charge of their own spirit, their own countenance. A leader must be able to edify, to uplift, and display trust and confidence, even hope to others, even though you're in the midst of your own personal battle. Leaders must be honest and transparent about those battles and personal struggles, even difficulties, but as done with accountability partners. This is why you have uh, associates or other pastors, other leaders. This is why we have boards. This is why you have oversight. You take your problems up, but don't display them or bemoan them from the bima because you'll lose people and you'll start sowing discord into the congregation. Effective leaders are task and goal-oriented people people's people. We must work with both in mind. Listen, in the military, and if you're just joining in for the first time, I retired from the Navy, the submarine service. After 22 years of service, I served on three fast attack submarines. In the military, in the Navy, we were task-oriented. We have a mission. We have a goal. Everything strives to getting that goal completed successfully. If the sailor didn't get their job done, Hey, we got rid of them. It's just business. We would get someone who could get the job done. It didn't matter if we liked them or not. If we got along with them, the ship had to do its mission, and we ensured that that mission got done. We have to be goal and task-oriented, but we've got to accomplish it through people. And this is the drastic difference. This is one of the largest aspects I had to overcome of going from active-duty military into volunteer service and serving the kingdom of God. Because though we are goal and task oriented in the kingdom, we're accomplishing this through people who are volunteers. In the military, I had many tools I could use to motivate that sailor to work, such as liberty, such as money, such as bunking, such as, you know, there's many skill sets we employed. They weren't necessarily the greatest, but it got the job done. 
But people who are volunteers, they've got to want to be here. So you have to provide that atmosphere that they want to be part of the team, that they want to be here, that there's clear vision, that they see you're going somewhere, that you're relevant and topical, and they want to come alongside you and work with you. This gives them purpose. It gives them buy-in to the congregation's vision and a sense of community through participation in congregational programs and outreaches and functions. We can't ignore the needs of those that are co-laboring with us to fulfill our task. It's not about grinding down the people. It's about bringing the people together, edifying, loving them, and even in our shortcomings and character flaws, coming together for the common purpose and goal of the greater body of Messiah. In Titus 3, verse 14, it says, And have our people learn to apply themselves to doing good deeds that meet genuine needs so that they will not be unproductive. You know, there's an aspect to here. Oftentimes, people suffer depression. The greatest tool in overcoming depression is doing something for somebody else. Faith without action is dead. And so by being an active congregation, by providing that edifying, uplifting trust and hope, you bring people alongside you that are like that. And with a common purpose and goal, you reach out to what God has called us to do, which is restore the body of Messiah in preparation for Yeshua's return. This is supernatural, but it's got to be done through good leaders who understand who they are, that have self-control and discipline, and know who they are in Yeshua. As a leader, you must be able to both encourage and edify and also confront and rebuke co-laborers in the kingdom. Again, as I said, most of the kingdom laborers are volunteers. Their reward isn't money. It isn't a title or position or the next rank. Their reward, what they're striving for is the fulfillment of the spiritual fulfillment in the kingdom of God. They're building crowns in heaven that's received by investing their talents in God's kingdom here on this earth. However, volunteers are human. They have character flaws and weaknesses just like we do. So it's identifying what those are and using those people to their max giftings to help them be successful, that they have self-worth in the kingdom and that they then are prospering other people to do the same. Every person, regardless of who you are, needs an occasional compliment to lift the spirit. Shaul Paul, he knew how to encourage. He frequently began his letters, his epistles, with complimentary statements. Look at Philemon 1, verses 4 and 5. He says, I thank my God every time I mention you in my prayers, Philemon, for I'm hearing about your love and commitment to the Lord Yeshua and to all God's people. To Thessalonia and 1 Thessalonians 1, verses 2 through 4, we always thank God for all of you, regularly mentioning you in our prayers, calling to mind before God our Father what our Lord Yeshua the Messiah has brought about in you, how your trust produces action and your love, hard work, and your hope, perseverance. We know, brothers, that God has loved and chosen you. What a phenomenal edification to the congregation in Thessalonica. Compliments don't always come naturally to us, but it does need to be incorporated into sound kingdom leadership. I, I, I'm not a fan of, of uh, you know, letters of appreciation or small statues, that kind of a thing, because we are striving for crowns in heaven. But to tell a person, hey, they're doing a good job, we appreciate what they're doing, they're in the right direction, they don't always have to be direct, yet praising a person in front of others is also an effective morale booster, not only to that person, but to the entire congregation. They see the action and the commitment and the loyalty and that God's kingdom is expanding. On the flip side, 
probably one of the hardest things to do for a congregational leader, for any leader, either in the military, in the civilian realm, and in congregations, in the corporate realm, is the ability to confront and do so in the right spirit. And I don't even like that term confront. I'd rather say care front. Most people are timid. They're even afraid of confrontation. Some leaders will go out of their way. And I understand this. As leaders, we walk in brotherly love. So there's a tendency to want everybody to like you. But I've got to tell you another hidden secret in the kingdom of God. Not everyone's going to like you. Not everyone's going to have your vision. Not everyone's going to understand where you're coming from or where you're going. And that's okay. But if you have an issue in the congregation, those issues, those zeruses, those confrontations can become a cancer that cause congregational splits. It causes corporate divisions. It causes boards to revolt against their CEOs unless it's dealt with quickly and efficiently. Sometimes confrontation could be too harsh and it's offensive. If we learn how to care front in the right way, our chances of being received will be greatly multiplied and there's a high probability you're going to keep that congregate in the congregation if you identify what the issue is and speak to that person in love. Now, does that mean they're going to roll over every time and and receive correction and rebuke? No, unfortunately, no. But if we follow a couple of scriptures that give us several characteristics of a right spirit, we will be more successful. 1 Timothy 2, verses 25 through 26. Also, he should be gentle as he corrects his opponents, for God may perhaps grant them the opportunity to turn from their sins and acquire full knowledge of the truth. See, the scripture doesn't say don't confront. We can't pretend issues will go away. They won't. They only multiply and grow, which is why we have to deal with them quickly and effectively. But we should be gentle in our correction, for perhaps it will grant them the opportunity to turn from their sin and acquire the full knowledge of the truth. Verse 26 goes on to say, and come to their senses and escape the trap of the adversary after having been captured alive by him to do his will. That's a profound statement. So the enemy's constantly trying to get in your camp. He's trying to bring about a divisive spirit, a divided spirit, but we have to stand for unity. We have to stand in love and confront issues immediately when we see them crop up. This can be difficult as often our emotions are involved in confronting some, many times it's personal, but we have to be able to set aside our personal thoughts and ideas and deal directly from the eyes of God when we're dealing with correction. We have to be able to control our emotions and anger and do correction, care fronting in love. Galatians 6 verses 1 through 2 said, Brothers, suppose someone is caught doing something wrong. You who have the spirit should set him right, but in a spirit of humility, keeping an eye on yourselves so that you won't be tempted to bear one another's burdens. In this way, you'll be fulfilling the Torah's true meaning, which the Messiah upholds. So there's two qualities here that we see in a right spirit of care fronting others. It's humility and it's gentleness. And if we can go to another person in a, in a humble spirit and gently and maintain this emotion, this spirit during our time with them in correction and care fronting, and we're able to speak to them in truth and love and allow them to hear what the Lord might be saying to them, we will be effective. Our motivation and confrontation is to see the other person restored. Listen to me. Our desire is to see them restored in the kingdom of God. We have asked over the last 20 years, I think maybe five people not to return to this congregation who were clearly obstinate, stubborn, and refused to acquiesce in submission to the congregation, to leadership, and that's okay. We don't want to see them go forever. We want to see a spirit of repentance within them. We want to see them restored back 
as our brothers and sisters and in the greater body of Messiah. We want to restore and eliminate problems that stand in the way of God's blessings and moving in whatever area of work or ministry where God has you. It's not our position. It's not our job to punish or belittle people. I've said this before when there are unresolved issues or conflict in the body. God freezes that congregation where it's at. If you're not growing as a congregation, you've been stagnant at the same size for the last five, seven, eight, ten years. There are many areas and reasons why this is, but one of them is clearly this. It's the inability, the unresolved, to confront and take care of issues. People won't go to a place where they know that there's issues, where there's unresolved trouble, and they don't feel safe, and they don't feel they're able to grow and learn in a safe atmosphere. We have to deal with the situations and clear them up quickly. No growth, no blessings, no move of the spirit. So we have to be able to confront issues and tackle them, but in humility and gentleness and maintaining that spirit, not in anger, not in bitterness, our job isn't to punish or belittle, is to love them back into the kingdom. There are many reasons why we would have to confront a person in the congregation, a co-laborer who's with us. They're entertaining sin in their life. That's a no-no. They can't be engaged in sin. Listen, we've had many couples come into this congregation over the years that were living together and not married. Two of those left, three of those immediately repented and got married. I married them. That's just an example. But if there's sin in their life, and you know there's sin in their life, you have to confront them about that sin. Ezekiel says specifically that if you see a person sinning, if you don't confront that person, you will be held accountable for that sin. We have to deal with it. It's not easy, but we have to be effective leaders and deal with the issues. If there's someone manifesting a poor attitude or they're, that are negatively affecting others, listen, we call them downers, life suckers in the Navy. I've, I've come across many of those people in my life. Everything's horrible. Their life is horrible. Every around them is horrible. Listen, the joy of the Lord in Nehemiah, the joy of the Lord is our strength. And so if there's a consistent spirit of negativity, if there's consistently a poor attitude, that person needs to be confronted because something is critically wrong in their life and that needs to be resolved because a person with no joy is not serving the God of Israel. If a person is not fulfilling their responsibilities, if there's set tasks and that person needs to follow those tasks, if they're not goal-oriented, if they're not fulfilling their tasks, you've got to confront them. Why isn't the job getting done? Either a volunteer or a paid staff member, they've got to complete what they've been given. And uh, now, you know we have to be cautious not to overwhelm them and give them what's beyond their ability or capability to perform. But if it's within their realm and they have the gifting to do it and to complete it, and they're not being done, they're not fulfilling their responsibilities, then we've got to confront, we've got to care front that person, but with a humble and gentle spirit. Or if a person is spreading disunity and being divisive, this is a critical, listen, the enemy is habitually seeking to divide. The kingdom is not one of divisiveness or division, but one of unity and harmony. Oh, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell together in unity. Yeshua died that Jew and Gentile would be one in Messiah. The Gentiles are joint heirs, joint partakers, joint heirs of the kingdom of God with us, the Jewish people. Anytime you've got a spirit of discord, a spirit of divisiveness, a spirit of disunity, it must be dealt with immediately. You've got to confront these people or you will, I promise, you will have a congregation divide because they will take others with them. It's like a cancer. When we care front, we should always go to the individual alone first, but do so directly. This is a habitual problem, not only in among 
congregates, but in the corporate realm and the in the world we see this through social media, rather than talk to the person who they've got a beef with, they immediately take it to the very top where they blast that out over Facebook or Instagram. The word says in Matthew 18, verse 15, moreover, if your brother commits a sin against you, go and show him his fault, but privately, just between the two of you. If he listens to you, you have won back your brother. So first of all, the first key to this is sin. It's not something that irritates you about someone else or or a character trait or a, a tick in their personality that you can't stand being around that person. We're talking about sin from a biblical standard. If that person has sinned against you, then go show them their fault, but privately, Go to them first. You don't immediately go to the right. And you got to teach this to the congregation and to your staff. If someone has a problem with one of my staff members, if they come to me, the first thing I ask them is, have you talked to that individual? And categorically, 95% of that time, the answer is no. Why is that? Because they're sheepish. They're timid. They don't want to confront. We have to overcome that. The word says you go to that person first, but you go with a motive to restore, not to punish, not to belittle, not to get this person out of the congregation, but to restore that person back into the greater body and into the greater body of Messiah. We must do so with a spirit of humility and gentleness, and you can't walk and dance around that mountain. You've got to be very specific. You can't infer. You can't be non-direct. You've got to go directly to the person, sit them down and say, here's the issue. I've tried that over the years to infer, you know, kind of dance around the mountain. I'm trying to be gentle and not bruise the person's spirit. They have no idea what you're talking about. So I've learned a a good friend of mine, a mentor, Rabbi Robert Solomon, said over the years, you're the man, you're the rabbi, get in there and deal with the situation, which is true. You've got to be specific about the issue, the sin, the problem. You can't beat around the bush. They won't understand what you're talking about. And if that issue persists, if it remains unresolved, then it comes to the rabbi, to the rabbitzin, and we will get to the bottom of the issue. The reality is, and here's a harsh reality, that sometimes that person won't receive correction. And when that happens, then it's time for that person to move on. It's time to go. And again, as Rabbi Robert Solomon once shared with me very profoundly, if they don't want to be there, don't beg them to stay. If it's time for them to go, let them go. Otherwise, they bring a poor attitude, a spirit of divisiveness, and they'll be unhappy in your congregation, spreading an attitude of grumbling, mumbling, dissatisfaction, and a divisive attitude that will hurt and eventually wind up in a congregation split. 1 Corinthians 5, verses 9 through 13 says, In my earlier letter, I wrote to you not to associate with people who engage in sexual immorality. This is Paul writing to the congregation in Corinth. Verse 10, he says, I didn't mean the sexually immoral people outside your community or the greedy or the thieves or the idol worshipers, for then you would have to leave the world altogether. Verse 11, he says, no, what I wrote to you was not to associate with anyone who is supposedly a brother, but who also engages in sexual immorality, is greedy, worships idols, is abusive, gets drunks or steals. With such a person, you shouldn't even eat. For what business is it of mine to judge outsiders? Isn't it those who are part of the community that you should be judging? God will judge those who are on the outside. Just expel the evildoer from among yourselves. He also said in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 33, don't be fooled, bad company ruins good character. So there are points and times when, listen, they've got to go. Titus 3, verses 10 and 11 says, warn a divisive person once, then a second time, and after that, have nothing more to do with them. You may be sure that such a person has been perverted and is sinning. He stands self-condemned. You know, it's, it's hard to comprehend, but I had one of these people a number of years ago 
I said, it's time for you to go. Don't come back here. They agreed. They don't want to come back here. But they wanted to maintain fellowship with the congregation. Can you believe that? Listen, you're either all in or you're all out. We're not a part-time place, you know, for social recreation. We're here to serve the God of Israel and to do so in purity, righteousness, and truth. We're here to grow in Messiah. We're here to challenge each other to grow and become leaders in the kingdom and bring in souls. Those who are wise win souls. That's what it's about. And so those who aren't with us, they're against us, as Yeshua said. And so in the end, the new Jerusalem, the temple descends and heaven and earth are restored by the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven. And in Revelation 21, verses 25 through 27, it says, this new city, this new Jerusalem, it has gates that will never close. They stay open all day because night will not exist there. And the honor and splendor of the nations will be brought into it. Nothing impure, get this in verse 27, nothing impure may enter it, nor anyone who does shameful things or lies. The only ones who may enter are those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life, the Sefer HaChaim. Those whose names remain in that book are the only ones that come into this new kingdom, uh, the new Jerusalem in the end during Yeshua's millennial reign. Revelation 22 verse 15 says, outside, now get this, outside, Listen, this is a message that the entire body of Messiah, we've got to come back to the foundational truths of who we are and the morality and code of conduct that is described throughout Scripture. Revelation twenty-two fifteen 15 says, who don't enter those gates, who can't come into this kingdom outside of the homosexuals, those involved with the occult, with the drugs, the sexually immoral, murderers, idol worshipers, and everyone who loves and practices falsehoods. So the believers who are necromancing, the believers who are reading horoscopes, the believers who are living together outside the covenant of marriage, those believers who in the kingdom of God get married in a same-sex marriage, that is not of the kingdom of God. And we have to stand for truth and confront sin when we see it, but do so with a spirit of humility and gentleness that we could win a brother or sister back into the kingdom. Leaders also need to cultivate their spouse with support and a sense of involvement. In 1 Peter 3, verses 3 through 8, it says, Your beauty should not consist in externals such as fancy hairstyles, gold jewelry, or what you wear. Rather, let it be the inner character of your heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit. This is speaking of women in the kingdom. In God's sight, this is of great value. Verse 5, this is how the holy women of the past who put their hope in God used to adorn themselves and submit to their husbands the way Sarah obeyed Abraham, honoring him as her Lord. You are her daughters if you do what is right and do not succumb to fear. Your husbands likewise conduct the married lives with understanding. Although your wife may be weaker physically, you should respect her as a fellow heir of the gift of life. If you don't, your prayers will be blocked. Finally, all of you be in one mind of feeling love as brothers and be compassionate and humble-minded. As a biblical leader, you must include your spouse. That's part of your ministry, even if that spouse isn't directly working with you. Your spouses should be included in shepherding and relate to them as essential compliments. Husbands should not be threatened by wives or they voice disagreement with some of your decisions. In fact, as a husband and wife, that person God has brought to be alongside you to shore up your weak areas, to protect your flanks. Women have such spiritual discernment that as men, we must listen to that discernment. We must be in unity as husband and wife before we move forward in the congregation. Because if we are not of one mind and one accord, we will sow a divisive spirit within the congregation. They have given us 
supernatural abilities to lead together to be echad and to see God's promises and principles and blessings be upon us in our families, in our marriages, which then go out to the congregation. Mishpacha, this is just some of the leadership skills we're going to be continuing on in our Kadima talks. I hope this has encouraged you today to stand strong, to be a voice of truth in spirit and in truth in our world today. And may your congregations, may your businesses continue to grow as you employ biblical principles and leadership skill sets in all that you do, that God will supernaturally bless you and we shall see his kingdom come in all its glory. May the Lord bless you and keep you. Shalom. Shalom.